The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. started our walk through the Gospel of Luke with Advent, those four weeks leading up to Christmas, with the angel Gabriel's announcement of two babies, John born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and Jesus born to the Virgin Mary. John as prophet would prepare the way for Jesus as the king, and here now the babies have grown up. John has already become a well-known prophet, and he began his prophetic ministry in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is now to be revealed as the promised king whom John was preparing the way for. And he's revealed at his baptism. Now, before Jesus' public ministry begins, he faces his arch enemy, Satan, in the wilderness where he is tempted. And that will be the focus this morning, temptation. And it's really, temptation, it points in the opposite direction of repentance. Last week we talked about repentance, which is turning from self and from sin to God. That's what repentance bids us to do, where temptation bids us to turn from God to ourselves and to sin. So that will be our focus, three things, the nature of Satan's temptation, what we learn from Jesus' example, and thirdly, what we gain from Jesus' victory. We pick up in Luke chapter 3, there's a typo in the bulletin, I'm going to start reading at verse 18, not verse 12, and then we will continue and pick up in chapter 4 and skip the genealogy. Luke 3 Starting at verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Skip down to Luke chapter 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will guard, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. A bit about the context. Uh, So far, Jesus has been largely off the radar. I mean, from his very birth, he's born in Bethlehem. He, in a stable, nonetheless. He grew up in Nazareth, a a nowhere town. Uh, With a few exceptions, Jesus has been off the radar up to this point. But his mission begins of seeking and saving souls now. With a voice that booms from heaven at his baptism, this one... You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, rather than wage a secret war, Jesus takes the fight directly to his arch enemy. Now, we have to remember when Satan faced the first Adam, Satan had invaded God's home turf in the garden. Now, when Satan faces the second Adam, Jesus, God himself has invaded Satan's home turf in the wilderness. The stakes are high, the winner takes all. By giving in to temptation, the first Adam lost paradise for all of us. By overcoming temptation, the second Adam, Jesus, will regain paradise for his people. As Phil Riken says, Jesus steps right up to the gates of hell and faces his enemy in close combat on an open field of battle. And Jesus came to regain all that had been lost in Adam, and by those of us who have followed in Adam's ways. And he will regain it, but the victory will cost him much. And Luke has tipped his hand to that fact. He foreshadows the cost of doing battle against the enemies and forces of darkness. The forerunner John would land in prison. And this godly herald would, end his, would have his life ended in a most humiliating way when his head would be literally served on a platter to Herodias, the former sister-in-law and later the wife of Herod because John dared speak out against that couple's backstabbing infidelity. So John prefigures how going up against forces of darkness would mean certain death. Now who led him into this wilderness? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And therefore, Jesus' trials, his temptations, his sufferings and sacrifice are all part of God's plan. He's led to face the arch enemy, and this enemy must not be underestimated. He is field-tested, battle-hardened, he is cunning, and presently, up to this point, undefeated. And notice, too, that Jesus and Satan square off in the same environment where Israel Uh, had failed in the wilderness where Israelites laid buried. They had never reached the promised land. Israel had wandered for 40 years, and here Jesus is wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, ultimately, Jesus would accomplish what every one of God's people had failed to do for themselves, and that is trust 
their heavenly Father and his goodness despite appearances to the contrary and live in perfect obedience to God and thus regain the paradise that was lost by Adam's disobedience and distrust. And so here the battle begins, the stakes are high, and the winner takes all. And so the first question is, what do we notice about Satan's temptations? Four things. It was unrelenting, subtle, sophisticated, and demanding. First, unrelenting. It was 40 days. For 40 days, verse 2, being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when, he, when they ended, he was hungry. See, during this entire time, Jesus was in the wilderness. The Satan, Satan was probing for weakness. And Luke merely re- records Satan's last, most ferocious attacks at the end of the 40 days, the last three temptations. And, you know, Satan doesn't even give up after Jesus resists those because in verse 13, we see that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until a more opportune time. Satan's temptations are unrelenting. The power of sin and darkness, it's unrelenting. Temptation is unrelenting. This is not good news. But in one way, it can comfort us, particularly for those of you who fought long in the battle against darkness addiction, sin, and temptation, you can know that you're not alone, that what you are enduring is not strange, that long-lasting temptation and unrelenting temptation is not uncommon. For certain seasons of life, it can actually be par for the course. And while that may not be the best news, it can be comforting news that you're not alone Because your king knows that same unrelenting power of darkness. He endured it himself. And he promises to stay with you through the power of his spirit to strengthen you and sustain you in those dark times. But while temptation can often be unrelenting, that's not all it is. It's also often subtle. After 40 days of temptation, the first of the three final temptations to Jesus was to turn stone into bread. Now you may ask, I did, what's wrong with that? I mean, God allowed Moses to turn stone into a water source, and if Jesus had the power to do it, why not let him? I mean, he's clearly suffering, he's clearly in need, but Satan's temptation is very strategic. He's hitting on soft spots here. It's not, it's not silly or artificial or random. See, Israel, like Jesus, had been told to trust in God's provision and goodness despite appearances in the wilderness. But instead of trusting their heavenly Father, who had proven faithful through the plagues and through the sea, when they got to the other side and they're in the wilderness and and they're facing new dangers and, and they're facing hunger, they grumble and complain against the Lord and they say, take us back to Egypt. Instead of waiting upon the Lord to provide and trusting His goodness, They wanted other gods. They wouldn't do this to them. Well, Jesus is tested as Israel was in the wilderness. See, he had to be tested in the same way they were when they failed. If he was ever going to be an appropriate substitute for us to be able to pay for our sin, he needed to be, be able to endure the darkness 
And like Israel, Jesus knew the Father's love and provision from eternity, past in, in fact. But the question is, would Jesus trust in the Father and wait upon Him? Or would He seek to take things into His own hands, believing this is no way you treat a son? Satan's suggestion for Jesus to take things into his own hand was subtle, turn a rock into bread, but it it actually carried the power of a huge destruction. It could destroy everything. It's not always big, obvious temptations or sins that are most dangerous. Subtle ones, small defects can be immensely destructive. If you're a Gen Xer like me, One of your first national memories was when the space shuttle Challenger blew up. Seven people were lost that day. NASA lost billions of dollars in equipment. Their reputation, it's safe to say, may have never recovered. Within an hour, 85% of all Americans had seen the space shuttle blow up on TV. It was a total loss. And do you know what caused it? a very small defect in the O-ring of the rocket booster ignition system. See, similarly, subtle temptations, small defects, small breaches of faith can lead to total loss, a systemic failure and death. Cancer is another illustration. It starts as just a single cell, but it goes haywire and thrives and takes over the whole system, leading to final death. Subtle temptation is more dangerous and potentially destructive than any of us can possibly know. Phil Riken says it this way, Satan's first temptation went right to the heart of what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God and Savior of the world. Jesus had come to do the Father's will, not his own will. And among other things, this meant trusting God to provide for his needs. Soon the Father would send angels to care for him, But Jesus may not have known that. And for the moment, it was still the Father's will for him to go hungry. Satan was tempting him, as he often tempts us, to be impatient, to get ahead of God's timetable by meeting his own needs in his own way, rather than by waiting on God to provide. But Satan's temptation was more subtle still, He's a crafty one. Notice how Satan framed the temptation. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, the Hebrew word translated if there, you know, it could be translated if or since. If it's if, then, then Satan is raising doubts about Jesus' identity when he's at his weakest moment. If it's since, he's saying, well, since you're the Son of God, just... Turn this stone into bread because as a son, I can't imagine why a father would treat a son like this. And, and it was a temptation to doubt the father's goodness, to doubt the father's love. What father would do this to their son? Now, lack of food can break even the strongest man. Just consider how you lose perspective after fasting for a day. Jesus wasn't fasting water, but he is fasting food And imagine how weak and frustrated and easily angered you would be after fasting for one week. And then do that five times. And you begin to understand the weakness that Jesus suffered here. What Jesus suffered would have killed most men. Dr. Riken further noticed Jesus would have been closer to death 
here than at any other point in his life except for the crucifixion. And see, the voice from heaven did declare Jesus is the Son of God, the one in whom the Father was well pleased. But if true, then why is he on the brink of starvation? How could this be God's will for his life? And see, Satan's attempting to raise that doubt and get Jesus to act on it. The main point is, Jesus is subtle because he plays to win. And nothing but victory will do. He applies unrelenting pressure. He'll capitalize on every human weakness, hunger, solitude, exhaustion. He'll raise every possible doubt in such a manner and in such a context as to guarantee the greatest possible effect. So don't underestimate this enemy's cunning determination. Thirdly, not only is it unrelenting and subtle, it's sophisticated. The second of the last three temptations shows just how sophisticated and cultured and cosmopolitan Satan can be. The Bible says he appears as an angel of light. And in verse 5 here, it says, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Maybe Jesus could see Jerusalem as well as the Roman Empire. Perhaps he could see future kingdoms throughout time, including our own. We don't know for certain. But in verse 6, Satan claims that these earthly kingdoms have been delivered into his hand, and thus he has the authority to give them to Jesus, if only Jesus will bow down and worship him. Now, the question I have is, is that a bold-faced lie? Did Satan have the right to do this? Was Satan telling the truth? Well, it's, it's a complicated answer, actually. Satan was telling a half-truth, When sin entered the world, Satan obtained some power over the kingdom of men. And Jesus recognized as much in John chapter 12, verse 31, where he called Satan the ruler of the world. But the full truth of the matter is Satan is rather acting the part of a masterful power broker, right? He leverages every advantage, real or imagined, to obtain the desired outcome he seeks. And even if that means promising more than he had the right to give, And what we notice here is that Satan remains very poised and he's all the more poised when attempting a hostile takeover. This snake is cultural, even refined. Look at the sophistry here. He recognizes that Jesus is king after all. Jesus deserves the right to glory and power over all the kingdoms. And if Jesus would be reasonable about it, he could have that without all the fuss Without a drop of blood, without a whimper of pain, Jesus could save himself so much agony and time if he's willing to share. After all, Jesus had already acknowledged Satan as the ruler of the world, so what could be so wrong with showing just a little more respect and evidencing that respect by bowing down in worship before Satan? See, if Jesus can simply accept certain compromises, then everything would go much easier for him. Jesus could have the crown, the glory, and the power without the cross, the shame, and the loss. And just how powerful this temptation was for Jesus, we cannot know. But we do know later in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke chapter 22, that Jesus would sweat blood, appealing to his heavenly Father, remove this cup from me but not my will, your will be done. Here we know that it didn't take long for Jesus to simply reply, it is written. 
you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It seems that Jesus didn't need to consider the alternative or take time to weigh His options. His goal was not to achieve some ease for Himself and save Himself trouble, but to win a kingdom for His people. As Dr. Reichen clarifies, he had his people in his mind and he wanted to give them an undivided kingdom where his people need not fear any more threats, foreign or domestic. And Jesus had seen through Satan's lies of a shared kingdom and a partial victory. He could not share power with the likes of someone like Satan, that accuser, that snake, no matter the cost. It took to win total victory, even if it cost him his life. And he would do this for his people and for his father, Father's glory, even if it meant suffering on a cross. So Satan's temptations were unrelenting, subtle, sophisticated, and then last, demanding. Demanding of God. See, Satan took notice of how Jesus fought back. Every time Jesus fights back, he fights back with Scripture, saying, It is written. And never the one to give up prematurely, Satan sees this as an opportunity. How seriously does Jesus take God's promises of it is written? Really? If Jesus really takes those promises seriously, is he willing to put his money where his mouth is? And so Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle and said, since or if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For he promises to command his angels to guard you lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, trying to get Jesus to question his own identity is a very sinister thing. To question his own Father's love, that if if you're the Son, why doesn't the Father parade you around? That's what a loving, doting Father does. He parades his Son around. He doesn't abandon him to the wilderness. Now granted, heaven's voice declared the Father's love at His baptism, but, but what does that prove really? If Jesus wanted to know for sure, He should have the right to demand a sign that everyone could see. Satan was tempting Jesus to demand a sign rather than trust God's Word, to live by sight, not by faith. So here Satan is daring Jesus. You keep appealing to God's Word as true, we'll prove you really trust it as true. You say you're the Son of God, prove it with a spectacular leap of faith. And if Jesus took the leap and landed safely, everyone would know without a shadow of a doubt that he was God's promised one. Now, ironically, what Satan proposed seemed on the surface a spectacular exercise of faith, but in reality, Jesus would only need to jump if he had any doubt. But Jesus knew who he was, and so Satan couldn't get a foothold. And he knew his father's love. And so Satan couldn't get a foothold. And when you know truth and you rest in it, there's no need to prove anything to yourself or anyone else. He had already heard from his heavenly father that he was a delighted son. And that was enough. He trusted his father's word. He didn't need to prove anything. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So there you have it. The nature of the temptations Jesus endured, relentless, subtle, sophisticated, demanding. Now, there are two major implications. First, what do we learn from Jesus' example when, when he was tempted? 
<clears throat> well, the first thing we learn is, is don't expect any mercy from the powers of darkness. Satan seeks to destroy you and your family. He's relentless and he'll use anything he can. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be on our guard. Now, sometimes Satan is severe hitting you during a personal crisis. But he knows he must be careful there. Because if he overdoes it during crisis, he might just drive you in your desperation back into your Heavenly Father's arms. See, being relentless does not necessarily mean being severe. The enemy often chooses much more subtle things. The most effective temptations are, are little, subtle lies, half-truths. That's how he got Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's especially true for religious people. Seduction seems to work best using things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but they're an over-desire, an inappropriate desire, or an intemperance for a good thing. And if he can separate you from trusting in the Father's love through little things, that's good enough for him. See, it's not always the big obvious temptations that undermine people's intimacy and trust in God. C.S. Lewis illustrates this point so cleverly in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fanciful collection of letters from a senior devil to a junior devil telling him how to develop the art of temptation. He writes, My dear Wormwood, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided they are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into nothing. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. Brothers and sisters, what is separating you from the Lord? What is deadening your intimacy with Him? A person's captivation with career can be just as deadening as adultery, as drunkenness, as addiction. The tempter doesn't want to risk rousing a person's conscience or self-awareness. It's safer to snag them by deadening their worship, getting them into a pattern of constantly being exhausted, maybe exhausted by keeping them distracted by the news cycle or social media or, you know, the Golden Globes. You can't miss out what's going on there. Families that are captivated by the demands of schoolwork or sports teams or Parents who are just captivated with improving their golf score. See, if he can get you on those things, you won't notice how little you're nourishing your soul in prayer, how little you're praying for your kids or reading Scripture and explaining it and working it out with them, or how little you're meditating and wrestling things out with the Lord. Are there any rhythms and habits in your life, however socially acceptable, that are separating you from the Lord. Dear brother and sister, those are sometimes the most dangerous ones. The second thing we learn is trust your Heavenly Father. Jesus trusted His Heavenly Father despite all appearances to the contrary in the moment. Your Heavenly Father cares for you even when you're in the barren wilderness. And some seasons of life, you'll be in a barren wilderness, not of your own making. The Spirit will lead you there and you will be kicking and screaming. You do not want to go. Thankfully, we have a Savior who led the way and He didn't go kicking and screaming. He went, 
He went willingly. He went for us to defeat the enemy we all face there so that we can have hope and we can be sustained. So he's not asking you to do anything he did not do himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And so that gives you great courage to trust him, to wait upon him, wait for his provision and comfort. It will come in his timing. I know it feels like it won't, but it will. God is faithful. Satan will bid you to comfort yourself with immediate pleasures that will distract you. But sometimes the Father, he's calling you, let go of those things, those immediate pleasures, so you can feast on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Third, prepare by knowing God's word. If you don't know God's word, you're a sitting duck. But once you know it, trust it. Trust it over everything, over your appetites, over your sense of identity, whatever you think that sense of identity is, over appearances, over pain and suffering, over feelings, over experience. Each and every one of Satan's temptations will strike at God's word. It will question his promises and provision. Remember, temptation is bidding you to go in the opposite direction of repentance. It's bidding you to turn away from God and towards self and sin. So we can learn a lot from Jesus' example, not not to expect an easy life, to trust our Father despite appearances, to prepare ourselves by knowing God's word. But that's not really the point of Jesus' showdown with Satan in the wilderness. The point is, Jesus did something for us because he knew we couldn't do it. The point is, Jesus stood alone against the power of evil and won. He alone saw through Satan's lies at every turn. He alone resisted Satan's temptations, no matter how alluring, no matter how exhausted he was. He alone faced the enemy and endured. The point is, we gain. We gain from Jesus' victory. What do we gain? We gain a substitute who stood in our place so that we can stand in his. See, Satan meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Satan meant to tempt Jesus into disobedience and sabotage the kingdom, but God used it to test Jesus and demonstrate his perfect obedience in order to regain the kingdom. And Jesus not only won this battle, On the cross, he won the war. In the wilderness, Satan had met his match and more, but on the cross, he met his defeat. And Jesus proved to be the champion. Not just the champion, but our champion. And Phil Reiking closes out by writing this. Our victory comes through the victory of Jesus. If we had to face the devil without the saving work of Jesus Christ and without the gracious help of his Spirit we wouldn't last more than a millisecond. But we do not face temptation alone. Jesus is our great champion in the fight. By His obedience in the wilderness, by His suffering on the cross, by His resurrection from the dead, He has defeated the devil and opened the way for us to enter paradise. Amen, brothers and sisters? This is good news. But it gets even better. That very power of Christ lives in you. Wow. The Keith Gettys song illustrates the powerful gain we receive from Jesus' victory over temptation. And we're going to sing it in a moment, but let me read it to you. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. 
when the tempter would prevail, he would hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Let us pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus who faced down Satan and in that showed us the unrelentless nature of his temptations, their subtlety, their sophistication, just how demanding they are and what we can learn from his example and how to fight it, that we shouldn't expect a life of ease, that we really can trust you, that you are faithful even when it doesn't look like it, and that you always, always vindicate and care for your children. And Father, we gain so much from, vic- from Jesus' victory over it. We could not have done it ourselves. We didn't. We needed a Savior. Thank you for giving us one, one who holds us fast. In Jesus' name, amen.